0: Man, Thank you so much, guys. If you have a copy of God's Word, please take it and turn to John, chapter 18. Uh, while you're turning there, let me remind you that you are in a bilingual service. And so if you need to listen to the message in Spanish, there are listening devices in the back, on the back table in a basket. So please take advantage of those if that's something that you would like. John, chapter 18, marks the beginning of a very important shift in the Gospel of John, where John is turning his attention to explaining Jesus' journey to the cross. John chapter 18, verse 1, we see a dramatic shift because John wants us to see every single facet of this important developing storyline through these real historical accounts. Now, it's important to note that what we're about to begin is a cosmic battle... Of eternal significance. When you think about battles or epic battles from history, there's a lot of that come to mind. And, and typically, epic battles come to our minds from history because you've got two imposing forces that are kind of coming at each other in a very unique historical moment. That's typically how these kinds of battles make their way into history. I love history. One of the more kind of uh, important battles in ancient history was uh, between the Greeks and the Persians. Uh, between Alexander the Great and Darius the Persian and his forces. And one of the reasons, and, and one of the particular battles between these two armies, one of the reasons it was so significant is because the victor from that battle became the ruler of the known world at the time. The Greeks had a two-to-one disadvantage to the Persians, but they somehow managed to win. And it went into the history books because of this unique situation and this kind of unique historical moment. What I want you to know about John chapter 18 is the battle you and I are about to read about is bigger and grander than any battle of history that we've ever seen or been recorded Because the battle we're going to read about in John 18 has to do with eternal life, and your soul and my soul hangs in the balance. With that in mind, would you please stand with me to your feet as we honor the reading of God's word, John chapter 18, verses 1 through 12. This is what the Bible says. went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. This is the word of the Lord. This is God's holy, infallible, and inerrant word to us. Would you please pray with me? Father God, we're asking in these moments for you to speak. God, we pray that you would remove distractions and that your word would pierce our minds and our hearts. Lord, as you speak to us this morning, would you help us not just be hearers of your word, but would you help us be doers as well? In Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen. You can be seated. This battle... Begins with a trap, a trap that was laid and a trap that was sprung. One of the things that helps us understand the significance of this trap is noticing that that John writes these verses in a particular way, so as to make a particular and unique connection to the Old Testament. Okay, John's writing what he's writing in a very unique way to establish a connection to some themes from the Old Testament. Notice in your Bibles, verse 1, we read these words. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the Brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Jesus has just finished praying over the disciples in chapter 17. Here, there's some geographical references that are mentioned, but they end up in what's described as a garden. Now, I believe this is not just John's way of giving us a geographical point of reference. He's also wanting to make a theological point about what's about to happen to Jesus. You see, because in the first garden, In Genesis chapter 3, there was also a battle that was waged. Adam and Eve fell under the deception of the serpent. They ate of the tree and rebelled against God. As one commentator I read this week put it, life was brought into the garden, but life also brought death. What John is wanting us to notice is Jesus is entering a garden again for round two. And this time in the garden, we need to watch very carefully to see if life brings about death or could it be that there will be a reversal where death will bring about life. What raises the stakes in this setting in the garden is we can observe at least four unique forces that come to oppose Jesus. I want to show you this in the text, four really quick forces that oppose Jesus in these first three verses. Look at verse 3. It says, so Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some of the officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. That first reference to a band of soldiers in the original language refers to what's called a Roman Cohort. This would have been a detachment of Roman soldiers most of the time, which numbered close to 600 soldiers. Now, most people don't believe 600 soldiers showed up in this garden, but rather a part or a detachment of them came to arrest Jesus. What's important is not the numeric size of the force, as it is the presence of the Roman government because at the time, the Roman government, they were the world superpower. Their interest is not in settling a squabble between Jesus and the Jewish leaders. Their interest is stability in their empire. And so they show up, world superpower coming to oppose Jesus. That's the first group that's there. The second group that's mentioned in verse 3 is a band of officers and leaders from the Pharisees and Jewish leaders of the day. This represents the religious elite are also opposing Jesus. The religious elite had felt most threatened by who Jesus was and what he had done and what he had taught because while they had taught that the law was how you found forgiveness and grace, Jesus had come teaching, no, the law is there to point you to your need for a Savior. And so they were threatened by Jesus, and they came to oppose him with what the Bible describes as weapons, lanterns, and torches. Those are the two that are pretty obvious to note. The other two actually are a little more subtle. Because while the Bible mentions Judas a couple of times, what the Bible makes clear is that Judas is there as a personification of sin. The third force that's opposing Jesus is the sinful rebellion of humanity. Because what Judas represents and what he's the culmination of is the pinnacle of human rebellion against God. From the Garden of Eden, Genesis 3, all the way to John chapter 18, humans have been rejecting God's authority in their lives. And John makes it clear that Judas is there as the betrayer, the culmination of our sinful hearts. That's the third force. But the fourth force is something that we saw in John chapter 13, and that is that Satan is possessing Judas at this point. If you're taking notes, you can write down John 13, verse 27. Because when Jesus identifies Judas as the one who's going to betray him, the Bible clearly teaches that Satan comes into Judas in such a way that he begins to work through him to accomplish his will and his purpose. So consider this In Genesis chapter 3, Satan is showing up possessing a serpent. In John chapter 18, Satan is showing up possessing one of Jesus' own disciples. But he's there both times. So what we're meant to see as we read John 18 is John wants the tension to rise. He wants the stakes to be raised so that we recognize here comes Jesus Christ and he's about to be opposed by the world superpower at the time, the religious elite, human rebellion in the form of sin, and Satan himself are all coming to oppose Jesus Christ. Now before we re- move on, one of the reasons that's important for you and for me is because these first three verses confront us in our own sin and rebellion before God. You see, in order for you and I to really know God, to really experience who He is in His fullness, we have to start by trusting what God says about our problem. I'm going to put that on the screen for you so you can see that. Knowing God starts with trusting what God says about my problem. And here's the point I'm trying to make. The same darkness and sin that's at work in John chapter 18 is still at work today. Okay? And if we're really going to know God and who He is in all of His fullness, it starts with you and I acknowledging our problem that every human heart has rebelled against God. Yesterday I watched a documentary about um, the prison complex system in our country. I don't know if you know that in America we have over 2 million people in prison. And one of the, the things that the documentary was trying to wrestle with is why that's the case. And it went through a lot of different reasons and theories that they kind of put forward. Um, and there's no doubt that there are systems in place in our world that human beings can turn and use for evil. But I just want to remind us of why evil's in the world. The reason evil's in the world is not because of these impersonal systems of oppression that are out there. The reason evil's in the world is because the human heart is desperately wicked. See, we we have this tendency today in our culture of trying to depersonalize evil, trying to make it this force out there that we can't really put our finger on and how it's there. But the truth is, the problem with the world is us. Aren't you encouraged this morning? We're the problem. Our human hearts want to worship ourselves rather than God. And if we're really going to know God, if we're really going to experience his grace and his mercy and all that he offers in Jesus, it only has to start with us acknowledging we have a problem. My boys, uh, they have these little LED flashlights that they use at night sometimes to our chagrin because they stay up a little later than they should in their room, uh, talking and reading, but we want them to have something to read their Bible or read a book at night. And these little LED flashlights, if you click them while the lights are on, you can barely see that there's a light there. It's only when you turn the light off and turn that flashlight on that it actually can light up the whole room. Now that light was always there, The difference is, I could only see it against the backdrop of darkness. And here's the point I want to make to you. Sometimes we can only see the beauty of God's grace against the backdrop of the problem of our sin. We can't see how beautiful what Jesus has done for us until first we acknowledge we have a problem. One of my greatest concerns for you as your pastor is that we would ever become bored with God's grace. I'm concerned that it's easy for us to come in these doors week after week, hear good teaching, lift our voices and sing to God, but just kind of be ho-hum about the gospel and what God's done for us. Let me give you a remedy for boredom with the gospel. Are you ready? Remember what you've been saved from. Remember what God has redeemed you out of. Think about this. There are things today that you will do that, left to yourself, earn you the penalty of God's wrath. There's an attitude you're going to display on the road, maybe even on your way to lunch. There's a pattern of thought, guys, that you're going to let your mind go to before this day is over. There's a word you're going to speak to somebody that you know is sinful and unkind. And each one of those just in isolation is enough to warrant the full weight of the wrath and punishment of God in an eternal hell. That's the truth. And if we ever get bored... With God saving us from that, we're missing what God has saved us from. And what I wanna show you for the rest of our time this morning is I wanna show you in God's word how Jesus responds to this darkness and sin, okay? I'm gonna give you four statements that are gonna summarize how Jesus, through this text, kind of systematically responds, reigning superpower, religious elite, sin, and Satan himself. First statement that I want to make to you about how Jesus responds. Though Jesus knows everything, he doesn't run away. Look in your Bibles at verse 4. It says, Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? Now think about this with me. If there was ever a moment where Jesus could have evaded capture, this is it. Number one, it's dark, pitch dark. It says that they brought lanterns because they couldn't see. Number two, Jesus knows the geographical lay of the land. The Bible tells us that he's been there multiple times to this particular spot. But most importantly, the Bible reminds us that Jesus is God. Did you notice that in verse 4? That Jesus knows everything that's going to happen to him. In other words, Jesus knows why these people are coming. He knows what's going to happen if he falls under their authority. He knows this results in his death. And yet, knowing all of these things, Jesus doesn't shrink back into the darkness, hiding among his disciples. The picture is of Jesus stepping forward into the light to say, who are you guys looking for? One of my favorite movies of all time is The Fugitive. Anybody in here ever seen The Fugitive? Tommy Lee Jones, Harrison Ford, great movie. Harrison Ford, as you remember, plays a doctor who's falsely accused of killing his wife. Through a series of events, he escapes from his captors um, very dramatically, I might add, jumping out of a bus as it's hit by a train. And, and then Tommy Lee Jones shows up, right, who plays the U.S. Marshal who's tasked with finding this guy who's broken, uh, broken free, uh, Harrison Ford's character. And one kind of seminal moment in the movie Tommy Lee Jones' character, this U.S. Marshal, gathers all of the police around, and he says, I want us to search every single spot in a 10-mile radius. And he goes through all the places, right? Outhouses and barnyards and farmhouses. He even says doghouses. We're going to search every place. Because he says, the average human foot speed... Uh, over 60 minutes is about six miles. And so they throw up this search tent over this entire area to catch Harrison Ford's character. They put up barriers, they put up checkpoints at key places on the road to try to find him. And what we're meant to see when we read John 18 is that none of that happens with Jesus. The Roman authorities don't set up checkpoints throughout Jerusalem. The disciples aren't trying to smuggle Jesus in a wagon, getting him through the dangerous streets of Jerusalem. Jesus Christ steps forward into the light and is recognized as who he is. First thing you and I need to notice is that though Jesus knows everything, he doesn't run. Second thing you need to notice, though he's all powerful, he doesn't destroy his captors. Look at verse five. They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. And when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Now, I mentioned earlier that John's writing his gospel in a very particular way so as to make a very unique and particular connection with other parts of the Bible. So when John very pointedly describes Jesus as saying, I am he, that's meant to be like a hyperlink. We click on and it takes us to a whole host of information. The first place it takes us to is when Moses comes to God. God's tasked Moses with taking the children of Israel out of Egypt, out of slavery, and Moses and God have a dialogue. And through this dialogue, Moses finally says, look, when I go to the children of Israel, who am I supposed to say you are? And do you remember what God says? God says, tell them I am have sent you because I am is meant to be a reminder that God's eternal. He's always been, he is, and he always will be. He's the everlasting God. And so when Jesus says, I am he, he's identifying himself as fully God and fully human, fully man. This is furthered because when Jesus says this word, when he says this phrase, it's so powerful, did you notice this, that his captors, all of them, fall down before Jesus. They all fall flat on their faces before him. When I read that, the first thing that came to my mind is Philippians chapter 2, where Paul says, one day, every knee will bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Here his captors are bowing before him because just with a word, Christ's power knocks them over. And John reminds us, in case we were wondering, that Judas is still there and presumably one of the ones who was knocked over as Jesus speaks. Now here's the point that John wants us to see. All of these guys, reigning superpower of the world, the religious elite, sin itself, and Satan, the Prince of Darkness, all are falling before Jesus just with a word. And what he's trying to show us is that these forces are ultimately impotent and powerless before him. I see Nathan Bechtold in the back there. Imagine with me for a moment that Nathan says, You know, I'm tired of Spencer preaching long sermons. And some of you are going to say amen, right? Uh, Tired of this, uh, we're going to take over. I'm going to take Spencer and, and get him, you know, pull him off the stage at about the 25, 30 minute mark so we don't have to listen to sermons that are too long. So he does something very interesting. He goes downstairs and he decides to recruit the three and four year old room to help him. So he gets my little Noah. And he gets Kylie, and he gets Grace, and he gets others from downstairs. And he says, okay, guys, we're going to go take Pastor Spencer hostage. And they say, yay! And he puts helmets on them, and he gives them little sticks and little bats, and he marches them in here and says, okay, guys, go get him. And here they come, charging down the aisle, making their way for the platform, and they begin to try to hit me with it. What do you think I'm going to do if that happened the first response is i'm going to be hysterically laughing now parents i don't know if you've had this reality but sometimes when your children are upset or they say something that's inappropriate isn't it hard sometimes not to laugh okay that that's more of a response some of you do that i know you do you turn and you bite your lip and you try all that is within you but the reality is is that would be pretty comical It would be pretty funny to watch three- and four-year-olds try to take a grown man hostage. Why? Because ultimately, they can't do it. They're powerless. Now, here's what I want you to see. The reigning superpower of the world, the religious elite, sin, and Satan himself are like three- and four-year-olds before Jesus. They have no power. They have no ability left to themselves to control or to constrict Jesus in any way. Now here's the point I want you to see. If this is who Jesus is, you and I need not fear anyone or anything. If this is who Jesus is, and you know Jesus. I don't have to be afraid of anyone or anything. You see, a lot of times we face uncertainty in this life. We face circumstances and problems and difficulties that we just don't know how they're going to turn out. And it's very easy to allow fear, anxiousness, worry, over-concern to grow in our hearts about things that are uncertain. And oftentimes I hear very well-intentioned people say, well, the remedy for fear is faith. And the problem with that statement is it's partially true. The remedy for fear is not faith in yourself. The remedy for fear is not faith in just hoping that things will go your way. The remedy for fear is faith in the right person. Faith in Jesus is what ultimately allows me to put my head on my pillow at night and sleep. Because the one who loves me and cares for me, the one who knows me best and loves me the most, is also the sovereign ruler of the universe. How can I conquer fear and worry in my life? It's by placing my trust and my hope in this Savior who loves me. So I wonder if there are some of you this morning who are maybe living in some worry and anxiousness in your life. Maybe it's some uncertainty about your finances or your job and you're wringing and you're your hands about that and you don't know what's going to happen The answer is not trusting yourself. The answer is not trusting uh, and just hoping that things go the right way. The answer is placing your trust and faith in Christ. Maybe it's different. Maybe for some of you it's a medical thing. Maybe you're waiting on a report from a doctor, a report from a scan that hasn't come in yet. How do we live with that kind of uncertainty in our lives? It's by trusting the one who loves us, who died for us, and who holds the world in his hand. If this is who Jesus is, I don't have to fear anyone or anything if I know him. Number three, third statement that I want to make about this passage. Though Jesus is being betrayed, Jesus protects and he guides. Look in your Bibles at verse seven. So, so he asks them again Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus answered them, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of those whom you have given me. I have not lost one. Now, if Jesus was in a courtroom here, he would be accused of leading the witness. You guys know what leading the witness means? Leading the witness is when a a lawyer or some kind of legal person begins to ask a series of questions that are designed to get a desired response. And so it's not uncommon if somebody were to do that, that the opposing lawyer would stand and say, objection, leading the witness. They're not asking open-ended questions that kind of leave truth to be discovered. They're trying to get a particular response from the defendant. Jesus here leads his captors back to their purpose. It's almost like he says, okay, guys, dust yourself off. Get back up here. Now, why did you come again? Don't you remember why you're here? And they tell him again. He answers. And in the midst of guiding his own betrayer to capture and arrest him, Jesus protects his disciples It's compelling because in the most traumatic, up until that point, the most traumatic moment in Jesus' life, being betrayed by one of his own disciples, he looks out for and cares for his own. And John reminds us that this is what Jesus prayed in John 17. That's why he says in verse 9, this is a fulfillment of what Jesus said. He promised he would protect them and he has and he will." The image that came to my mind when I was reading this text and working through it this week is Jesus as the good shepherd who cares for his sheep. The Bible talks about Jesus being a shepherd and, and one of the places it talks about how the shepherd leaves the 99 that are in safety to go after the one who's lost. And that's actually what we're seeing here. We're seeing the care and the concern of Jesus. Jesus. One of the reasons that's really important for me, for you to see it from me as your pastor, is because I think sometimes we think Jesus is just someone we have to trust, and we don't necessarily see him as somebody who's worth trusting. Let me make this statement Jesus is not just someone we have to trust for the forgiveness of our sins. That's true. We cannot be forgiven without trusting Christ. Jesus, though, is also somebody who's worth trusting. He's worth trusting. He's not just right. He is also good. Now, let me tell you why that's so important. In my life, personally, I have never overcome sin just by acknowledging that it's wrong. I've never said no to sin just by seeing that it's wrong. I've always said no to sin because I see that it's wrong, but I also see the beauty of what is right. The problem with many of us when it comes to obedience is that we've grown and we've been raised in an environment at times that sees obedience to Christ as keeping us from fun and enjoyment. Obedience to Christ is not just the right thing that keeps me from fun. Obedience to Christ is not just right. It's also good for my soul. So think of it this way. Think of it like a diet. I don't know how many of you on January 1 tried to start a diet, maybe successfully or unsuccessfully, as the case may be. But oftentimes the reason diets fail is because they never become a part of your life. They never become a really part of your lifestyle. It just becomes this little thing you try to lose a few pounds. Because the reality is when you start a diet, you don't like the food that you're eating. You don't like the food that you don't get to eat. You're you're missing out on some things. You're exercising. You're doing some things that are out of the norm for you. And the problem is many people never stick with those things long enough for them to become a habit. Because the reality is, if you stick with that diet long enough, you actually, crazy story, begin to like the food that you're eating. You actually begin to enjoy eating the right foods. And in fact, you begin to enjoy eating the right foods so much that when the wrong foods appear, they actually make you sick. They actually turn your stomach the very things that you found very attractive and appealing from a dietary perspective before are now things that if you ate them would make you ill. Your spiritual life is no different. When we come to Christ, there's a sense in which there's a spiritual diet God is putting us on that's waning our desires for sin and for evil and for the wrong things and growing our desires for obedience in righteousness and holiness. Parents, this is really, really important that we raise up a generation of kids to understand that obedience to Christ is not an absence of fun. I don't know how I conceptualized that in my head at different points, but it was very easy for me to see obedience as a drudgery. It was very easy for me to see Jesus and what he called me to is just something I kind of had to grip my teeth and just kind of work its way through and that is foreign, completely foreign to what the Bible describes about obedience. Obedience is a joy because Jesus is not just the right one to follow. He is also worth following as our good shepherd. Jesus tells us that he's not just someone we have to trust. He's also worth trusting. Number four and finally, This will close. Fourth statement that sums up what's happening here. Though Jesus doesn't have to, he submits to the Father. Look at verses 10 through 12. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. Now, at this point, we've seen Jesus as all-powerful, all-knowing. They're going back and forth in this dialogue. He's trying to protect his disciples. And Peter says, Enough talk. I'm done talking. He pulls out a sword. It was probably more like a dagger. And he goes and finds a particular person to attack. Amen. Yes. (laughs) A particular person that he was attacking. It wasn't just by random chance that he found the high priest's servant. Peter was sending a message to the man. Hope that translates. The man. He's sending a message to the religious authorities of the day. It's like the Godfather when they send the the fish wrapped up in newspaper, you know, Sicilian message, he sleeps with the fishes. Okay. Peter's sending a message because now, once this servant's ear is cut off, he can no longer enter the temple and worship. Now, we know from other places that Jesus heals the servant, but it's Peter sending a message saying, We won't bow to the religious elite and even these superpowers. And though Jesus has disciples who are ready to defend him. Though Jesus is all-powerful, all-knowing, could have called 10,000 angels to come at his beckon in a second, he tells Peter to put his sword away. And then he makes this important statement in verse 11. He says, Peter, shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? You see, the cup means the suffering and ultimately the cross of Christ that God had called him to go to. And so it's only after Jesus acknowledges the reality of his submission to God's plan that the the Bible describes that he's taken and arrested, and it even says they bind him. I don't know if you've seen the newer reboot of Superman, the newest reboot of the Superman movies, but there's a really key point when the the world is kind of threatened and they have to turn Superman over and Superman comes and surrenders himself and they put handcuffs on him. And there's a key point actually where Lois Lane is interviewing Superman and and she goes, so if you're so strong, why why are you wearing these handcuffs? And he says, if it makes the people feel better, I'll wear them. And it's as if when we see Jesus in handcuffs, what we have to recognize is he's not there because his captors have overwhelmed him. He's not there because they got the jump on him and surprised him. Jesus enters into this captivity. He enters into their authority because he's submitting to the will of the Father. Now, the reason this is so important it's because submission is often misunderstood. Submission often has a kind of misnomer. It's kind of got a, a, a dirty kind of impression that kind of comes into our minds about what it actually means. The reality is, submission is something God calls every one of us to. The reason Jesus submitted is because his heavenly mission conditioned his earthly interactions. It would have been very easy for someone to walk up at the end of this exchange, seeing Jesus in handcuffs and think, well, I guess he's lost. I guess he's been defeated. But the reality is, the submission Jesus made to the Father, his submission to the Father's authority, to the Father's plan, resulted in this. And in the same way, guys, you and I are going to be called to submit to God's authority in a way oftentimes that will leave people around us confused. Our heavenly mission and identity in Christ will condition our earthly responses and interactions with others. So it will be odd, ladies, for example, if you are a follower of Jesus and you're seeking to live the biblical model for the home, it'll be odd when you submit to your husband. And you respect him and you show him honor when other wives around you are talking about how their husbands are idiots. It will be weird, men, when you serve your wives as Christ has loved you with a sacrificial, serving kind of love that puts your wife ahead of your own needs. It will be weird to people around you that go, Why are you doing that? Children, it will be weird. When you honor and respect your parents, when others around you are trying to constantly subvert their authority, it will be weird. People will look at you and say, why are you doing that? It will be even more weird when you're at work and your boss does something incompetent, which I know bosses never do, your boss never does, but when your boss does something you don't like. And you still show that employer honor and respect. It will be bizarre to people around you. And they're going to go, why are you doing that? And the answer is we're submitting to our Heavenly Father. And because of our identity in Christ and our alien identity that we have in Jesus, it changes how we interact in this world. It's important for us to recognize that Jesus' submission to the Father is what ultimately led him to offer his life for you and for me. Now here's the point I want to make in closing. Christ's submission makes redemption possible and shows us redemption's path. Christ's submission, falling under the Father's authority, is what makes your forgiveness and my forgiveness of my sin a reality, a possibility. And at the same time, Jesus shows us the path we've got to take if we're going to receive this forgiveness. You see, there is no other way that you and I could be forgiven of our sins than Jesus submitting to the Father, submitting to these earthly authorities whom he created, following them into court after trial after trial, ultimately to the cross where he would hang for your sins and my sins as a penalty. He's taking our penalty. That he would rise again and offer forgiveness and grace for you and me. There's no other way we could have received that kind of forgiveness and mercy apart from Christ's submission to the Father. But here's what's so beautiful about that. Simultaneously... Jesus shows you and me how to receive this forgiveness that he won for us on the cross. Because what Jesus went through physically, through his death, burial, and resurrection, is what you and I are called to go through spiritually, death, burial, and resurrection. The only way we can find redemption and forgiveness is if we submit to to the Father, bowing our knees, turning from our sin, and trusting Jesus. It's counterintuitive. Dying to yourself means new life. (laughs) Rejecting what you want means you actually experience what you were made to do, and the answer is yes. Submission, though counterintuitive, is a beautiful thing that God gives us to experience His grace and mercy. Shelly and I, when we were dating, um, we first started dating, I was a college pastor in Fort Worth, Texas, and I worked with college students and young adults, and I was in charge of uh, leading our collegiate ministry and our young adult ministry, but I was kind of focused more on the college students. TCU was a school close by. We were working primarily with them, and, and when Shelley and I first started dating, I kind of recruited her to come help in the college ministry. But as this ministry began to grow and develop, it became clear that where I really needed her help was with our young adults, our young adult ministry. And so, I don't know, we've been dating a couple months, babe, something like that, and it became clear that I really needed Shiloh to move to this young adult ministry. So I came to her and I said, babe, I've been praying about this, I really think you need to go serve in the young adult ministry. And she said, No. And I said, uh, no, but I did, oh, I forgot. Maybe I forgot to mention. I've been praying about this and really looking for the Lord's guidance. And, and uh, she said, well, you're just doing that because you want to break up with me. And I was like, what? I don't know if you've ever been there, guys, when your wife makes a connection and you're still at the starting line. How did we get from here to there? I didn't understand. And so she explained it to me. She said, well, you're moving me to this other ministry so that if we break up, it won't be awkward because I'll be serving over here and you'll be serving over there. And I was like, mind blown. And so for a couple weeks, maybe even a month, we prayed and we talked about it and we dialogued about it. And I'll be honest with you, it it was tense. It was a little intense at some moments there's a really pivotal moment where we're coming to a point of decision. We had to get someplace. We had to decide if we were going to go zig or we were going to zag. And she finally looked at me and said, well, I don't really like this, but I'm going to trust you. And if this is what you think is best for this ministry, I'll do this. I'll go serve in this young adult ministry. And what was so ironic about that whole thing is the very thing that my wife thought would break us apart was actually the very thing that God used to confirm that she should be my wife. Submission is counterintuitive. The very thing in our relationship that God used to say, that's a person you could live your life with. That's a person that could trust you and follow you as a leader. That's a person you could put in front of yourself and serve with your life was something that my wife initially was concerned would break us apart. Here's the point I want to make to you. Submission is counterintuitive. It doesn't make sense at first to human eyes. But when we bow our knees to the Father in repentance of our sin and turn to trust Him, that's the only way we can truly experience the life God has for us. This Jesus has shown us that He's willing to submit to the Father totally and completely to make redemption possible. The only way you and I can experience this redemption is if we too submit to the same Father. Would you please pray with me, church?